The Incomparable. Number 398, March 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. This is an edition of our book club. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, the uh, beloved uh, science fiction and fantasy author, uh, passed away recently, and it got us talking about her and her work, and we decided to do, not rather than a giant overview, uh, because a lot of us haven't read a lot of her books, we decided to pick two books and have a bunch of people read them, and now we're going to talk about them. The books are The Left Hand of Darkness from 1969 and a wizard of earth sea from 1968 look at that um back to back almost and joining me to talk about these two books by ursula k le guin are the following wonderful people erica ensign hello oh i'm a wonderful person oh uh anthony johnston hello hello jason how are you it's uh very nice to hear your voice on the incomparable that's how i'm doing uh glenn fleischman is here hello i feel pretty wonderful thank you Oh, there's the wonderful people. Also, Scott McNulty is here. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, let's be honest, I'm not that wonderful, but I'm glad, Jason, you beat me to it. <laughs> Scott McNulty remains a guest in our podcast. He remains one of, <laughs> one of the guests that is available. Uh, I, I like to do book clubs with Scott because Scott has read lots of books. So uh, I wanted to start by asking about each of you about your history with these two books, if you had any, and with Le Guin in general, and I thought I'd start with Erica. Uh, I th- actually started reading Le Guin when I was in seventh grade because A Wizard of Earthsea was assigned as assigned reading. It was a book we had to read for English class. So that was my sort of first introduction to Le Guin. And myself and my friend Mike really enjoyed the book and everybody else in honors English, because this was an honors thing. Um, the regular English class kids did not read Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, everybody else hated this book. <laughs> so, oh, no. yeah. What? Uh, but yeah, I, I, it, it was it's it's maybe not the easiest, uh, easiest book to read for kids of that age, even the smart ones, apparently. But Mike and I had been reading fantasy and wizard stuff for a long time. And I think maybe the um, the farm kids that I grew up with did not get introduced to fantasy before this. So they struggled with that particular part of it i don't know uh but my parents were also fans of ursula k le guin and had lots of her books in the basement so after i finished reading this i had a whole bunch of other things that i could go and read and uh i actually had read the entire hainish cycle of books of which this is uh, of which the left hand of darkness is a part and i reread all of them for this podcast uh up up to and including the left hand of darkness i haven't gone on beyond that yet but i will wow so that is a serious commitment. So thank you. Um, I'm a nerd. Okay. Well, again, this is the incomparable. Anthony, what is your, uh, what about you? Uh, well, it certainly wasn't assigned, but I found them, I found the whole original Earthsea trilogy in my local library, which was only a small, you know, regional library. So it's kind of remarkable that they had these books at all, let alone all three of them in hardback. If you've seen the editions with the wonderful, almost woodcut style illustrations on the cover. It was those editions. And I was 11 years old when I first read Earthsea. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent grade is in America, <laughs> but um, yeah, only 11. And uh, it, it blew me away. Uh, it was, I didn't realise at the time how iconoclastic it was, of course, but I was familiar with fantasy as a genre. I had just started to get interested in things like game books, but not yet in role-playing games. So I had that, a little bit of a grounding, but mainly it just really gripped me. Um, 
right from the start, really, the, the whole story got me. And then I read the, the rest of the trilogy and was absolutely entranced. It was really, it was, there's actually the second book in the trilogy, The Tombs of Atuan, that really grabbed me. That was the one that kind of sealed the deal, as it were. But I did thoroughly enjoy Earthsea itself as well. I hated that book the first time I read it. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think just because it's very different from the first book. It is. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Different main was, character. So, you know. Yeah, I guess. But the, the first, uh, the thing in the first book that got me was how scary it is in places. And mm-hmm. I mean, sort of existentially scary. And that I had never come across in any kind of fantasy fiction before. And it, yeah, that was part of what really grabbed me. So I was from a very early age. That was it. I was, I was a fan for life. Glenn, what about you? Gosh, I don't know exactly when I first started reading her, but um, I had a uh, very committed uh, librarian in junior high who uh, really liked fantasy and science fiction and got us all interested in it. And um, she came back from a book fair once and brought me a signed copy of Janissaries by um, uh, – oh, who's the crank who wrote for Byte Magazine? I can't remember his name now. Oh, Jerry, um, Jerry, Jerry Purnell? Yeah, the first in that long series, it was very military. And I was like, oh, my God, she brought me a book from an author. Um, but she she was very encouraging of reading that stuff because she was trying to get us all to – to read a lot and um, also had a good sense of the breadth of it. So I think in junior high, like, so I was, you know, 11, 12 or something, I was reading, uh, I know I read uh, the Earthsea books early. I don't remember when I read Left Hand of Darkness, but I was always interested. I mean, I was born in 68. So, uh, you know, around 1980, we're still reading a lot of these um, fantastic, it, it was already old hat to some people, but we're reading the 1960s and 1970s stuff and it's blowing our mind. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's already in the past, kid. Like we're, we're into this, you know, that was old new wave. Now we're into this new stuff. But, um, so you're reading all the, all the guy authors who are all robust and trying to shift genres and Damon Knight and all those folks. But then, uh, we were exposed to all the female authors who had really shaped the genre and changed it. And I don't think we're as well acknowledged until later. And that's, of course, you know, Ursula Le Guin and Olivia Butler. And um, James T. Chip G- James, James Tiptree Jr., who is uh, Alice Sheldon, is the real name, um, was reading all that stuff and finding it really, uh, you know, incredible and mind bending and um, and influenced what I wanted from science fiction. So kind of right on that cusp, well, and fantasy as well, but right on that cusp of uh, where we're going to, a, I guess, a different. I kind of think there was a change in the '80s again about what science fiction was, maybe because of Star Wars and space opera kind of stuff that emerged in popular culture. So I feel like I was on the tail end of the '60s and '70s reading and really absorbed that as the DNA of what I wanted. I wanted to be challenged. I wanted, you know, gender identity, uh, culture, uh, hegemony, all these things. I wanted to hear more about that in what I read. Talking about how it felt like old hat that really when i was reading it like i say they had the even these old style covers and that did Mm. make me sort of think of them as old books and they were i mean they were 15 year they'd been published 15 years or earthsea had at least before i started reading that trilogy which you know when you're 11 years old is ancient because that's before (laughs) you were born but the i I realized that the equivalent now would be something that was published in 2003 (laughs) oh my god oh the heady days of 2003 with challenging ideas well and let's not forget that's two years after 9-11 <laughs> oh 
Oh, wow. Just to make us all feel really, really old. That's good. Well, it just shows you there was so much foment going on, though. The 1960s, you know, in every possible single aspect, but science fiction was and fantasy were sort of totally exploded, and that, that didn't happen in 2001. But um, but it's great for perspective to think how short a period that was. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to bleep myself here, but I'm going to do it. A Spinal Tap would say too much perspective. That means it's <laughs> it would be as old as, as American Gods. American Gods is that old. Wow. Right. Yeah. Okay. The one That's that Hugo in 2002. So, yeah. yep. Uh, excuse me while I turn to dust and blow away in the wind. <laughs> in the meantime, Scott McNulty, what about you? What was your, what's your relationship with Le Guin and these books? Uh, well, I don't really have a relationship with Le Guin or these books. I, uh, of course, have known of Le Guin. Le Guin was one of those authors that uh shaped the genre that I like to read so much and so I thought I really should read some of her stuff and I continued my life and didn't read any of it uh, <laughs> and Left Hand of Darkness in particular was a book that was on my to read list for years and years and years and I just never got around to it um and I am glad that this podcast was a catalyst for me to do it because I uh, very much enjoyed it a uh, Wizard of Earth Sea perhaps I enjoyed less but uh I I I read it, so there you go. I think that your relationship with Le Guin is that I assigned you uh, books for a podcast then. <laughs> yes, and then, then I read them. I had a copy of uh, uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, though, so I meant to read it. It was just Good. sitting amongst Good. hundreds of other books that I mean to read, so... I have a, a coda on memory, if I can just insert for one second, which is um, I have now discovered exactly how many years it takes to completely forget what's in a book, which I didn't know because I thought I remembered both these books years. very well. It's at least 30 years. Maybe it's less. For but... Scott, it's about three weeks, but it's fine. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But it's, I was like, oh, I know this book. Here's what happens in it. And here's a basic outline. And I remember some scenes. And then I read Left Hand of Darkness. I'm like, I didn't remember this book at all. Like, if you'd asked me, it would have been hilarious to ask each of us who had read it in the past and had it read it for a while what oh, was man. this book about like outline major plot points and i would have been like there's a bit with skiing i remember the skiing <laughs> <laughs> how could you forget the bit with skiing i didn't even remember the skiing i didn't remember anything about it even though i had read it before wow. it's so. fascinating though, but it's sunk into us we re we have that sense of it we mm -hmm. know what it's about when you read it it's putting the glove back on if you read it a long ago and it fits and it it makes you think, you know, some paths get reenacted in your mind, but it's still amazing to not remember any of the plot. If you're just tuning just in, this is old people forgot the books that they read. <laughs> New podcast. I'd never read Left Hand of Darkness. Uh, same as Scott, I'd always intended to, but just Let's never see. got around to it. So this prompted me to read it, which was good because oh, I also enjoyed it, apart from all the skiing. Um, <laughs> I, had a, yeah. I had a similar thing memory-wise with Earthsea, which I have reread several times, but it has been maybe 15 years since I last read it. Um, and I, yeah, had the same thing where I remembered almost <laughs> nothing. The one thing, if you'd asked me to like, what's it about? I could have told you the general gist, but the only mm -hmm. scene that I remembered with any, um, uh, clarity was the where he crosses over to the land of the dead. Yeah. And is fighting his way back and f sees the shadow waiting for him on the other side of a wall. For some reason, that scene of all the scenes in the book is the one that really, really stuck in my mind. Yeah. Interesting. I, I had a very similar experience. My, my relationship with Le Guin is a little bit more than Scott's, but not a lot, which is I read The Left Hand of Darkness in high school. It was on a list of books that were kind of approved as you need to read from the, from the list but you can pick and then do a book report and whatever else we had to do in high school. And so I picked all the science fiction and fantasy because 
it's me. And uh, I read Left Hand of Darkness. I never read Wizard of Versi until this podcast. And my memory, to tie it all back together, of what happened in uh, Left Hand of Darkness, it's funny. I could tell you the gist of it, I think, uh, before I read it. And I remember some things. I have some visual memory of it, like literally scenes I pictured. And I can remember those pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it having to do, yes, with cold, not necessarily skiing, but with tr- <laughs> with the, you know, surviving in the mm-hmm. in the brutally cold conditions and a couple of people trying to do a trek across a cold wasteland and 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 suffering and having, you know, and, and barely making it. Um, however, I also remember things that did not happen in the book. So that was a surprise. Oh, that's, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a surprise. It, it was funny, but I was I was happy to read it again and 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 see that even though I had misremembered some of it and forgotten a lot of it, um I you know, I having read uh Anne Leckie's book Ancillary Justice not too long ago, like 5 years ago or whatever, um and being struck by how much it reminded me of Left Hand of Darkness in rereading Left Hand of Darkness, I was like, "Oh yeah, okay. Yeah." I can see why I was struck by that. Like I, I didn't, I didn't look read the book and be like, "Whoa, whatever I was comparing it to is not the actual book." It's like, no, I, yeah. I, I feel like I got the spirit of the book, but the details, who, yeah, what, however long it's been, thirty years or whatever, I none. <laughs> this makes me feel so much better about this whole topic. Because, but it's, but it is interesting. It's like it's like plunking out a melody on a piano, and you're like, I thought I remember the tune, and I kind of have an echo of it. So when you sit down with the sheet music in front of you and you start to play, you're like, of course I know this song. How did I ever forget it? But you don't remember it until you're playing it. And I think that's kind of the beauty of a book that settled in deeply, you know, in you years ago. Uh, but now I doubt everything I remember of every book I've, I've read. So there we go. <laughs> I've, I've achieved I've achieved Scott McNulty. I want to go to these schools that you all attended where these books are assigned. What the hell? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Books like this were never assigned texts in my schools. Good Lord. We're not very competitive internationally, though, Anthony. That's the problem. Yeah, I I had the, uh, you know, it it was it was the pick from a list. So at least it's going to be, you know, acceptable. But then, yeah, I I, I abused I abused the list because it was literally like, yep, I'll take that one and that one. And it's all the same. I went to Catholic. Schools, so these were not assigned. No. Uh, C.S. Lewis is the closest uh, I, of mm-hmm. this that was assigned. But you take what you can get. I actually just remembered. Also, um, I had the pleasure of meeting Ursula K. Le Guin uh, at some point. Yep, she did a she did a reading at a cafe uh, owned by uh, some friends of the family. So my whole family went, and we all brought books to have her sign. And she did some she did some readings, and she was just. I, I don't think I had ever met anybody before who had like that kind of energy. She was, she just was this ball of, of energy. She's a very diminutive person and, and was just intense in a way that I hadn't really encountered before. And she did a reading of a short story that I don't remember the name of off the top of my head. Um, but it had to do with a tree and it was told from the perspective of the tree as if this, this oak tree is just running really, really, really fast. And, you know, at one point accidentally runs into a car and feels really terrible about it and how these, you know, pathetic little soft creatures inside of it died. And it was this tree's fault. And it just, it, it completely changed the way that I viewed the world. I had never experienced, I was pretty young at the time, I had never really experienced reading or hearing anything read that that played with point of view in that way before. And it, it completely changed the way that I that I sort of viewed art and the world. It was it was a formative moment. It was, wow. it was thanks to her. 
This edition of The Incomparable is brought to you by Just For Men. For an enviable beard and healthy-feeling skin underneath, opt for beard care from Just For Men, the number one beard experts. Soften up, smooth out, and beard on. They've got 25 years of men's facial hair expertise. They just know beards, and they've got a full line of fine products to prove it. Face and beard wash, beard conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm. Now, face and beard wash helps prevent beard itch, unclogs pores, calms and moisturizes, and deep conditions. Beard oil is light, not greasy, smooths and softens without clogging your pores. Beard conditioner deep conditions while calming and moisturizing the skin underneath. And the beard balm offers superior hydration, fights itch and dry flaky skin, and helps prevent ingrown hairs. I do not have a beard. It sounds complicated. It sounds like you need to take, to take care of your beard. And these are the products that will let you do it. Kiss your average beard goodbye. Usher in your softest, smoothest, best beard and skin underneath. Go to jfmbestbeard.com and put your best beard forward. Use promo code BESTBEARD25 and you'll get 25% off your purchase. Thanks to Just For Men, jfmbestbeard.com. Let's talk about these books then. Um, maybe we should start with Wizard of Earthsea. I, I think it's chronologically there and also I think, uh, well, I mean, we could argue about that. It, it is called a young adult book and it can be appreciated by young adults, although I think there's a lot, a lot more there. And this is the one I hadn't read at all. So um, I think one of the challenges that I've got with reading this is that um, in 1968, there, the available fantasy literature was a very different world than it is today, where... In, in that there was not oh, a lot yeah. of it, and now there is a lot of it. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, I, I, I read the uh, the little bit that she wrote. Um, I don't know when she wrote this, but it, it was uh, appended to the end of the copy that I read on my, on my Kindle. And she's talking about how when she was asked to write a children's book or a young adult's book, and she was not sure if she wanted to do that because she was like, I, I don't know about writing for kids. And then she realized, you know what? Uh, children and young adults are their people. So I'm just going to write a story that, uh, <laughs> that is, that is for, for people and, and, you know, use some of the themes that she sort of recognized from things like Tolkien. Which which were some of the few things that were around, but uh, uh, so she talked about um, it being very. Uh, she used a lot of the same thing, like you know, it's it's a boy. It centers on a boy. There's a lot of boys. There's wizards. There's so there's that kind of stuff. But um, she very subtly sort of you know turned things ninety degrees by making pretty much every single character uh, in the story black, which you don't necessarily know. But she's you know trying to subvert the tropes in a way that will still get her published and uh, and get some cash from it, but be able to to alter things to a certain extent. So I think she, she balanced that pretty well, but it was definitely aimed at kids. Yes. And that's when I was reading it. It's one of these books that, uh, I have no, uh, relationship with. I didn't read it when I think probably is the best time for you to read it, which is perhaps a little younger uh, than I am probably a lot younger than I am. Uh, <laughs> and as I was reading it, I appreciated how important of a book it was and it is well-written. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but uh, to Jason's point, there is, I feel like there are just so many books now that do what it was trying to do better. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad book. It just kind of left me a little, uh, just left me a little cold just because I was like, well, this is, I understand it's important. It's much like, I feel like the, I really like as as foundation series. Uh, but you read that now, if you are coming to it brand new after reading a whole bunch of science fiction that it has influenced and you think, 
I've read this story before and I've read it in a much better way. Uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it kind of started all of this. So that's, that's my feeling on a Wizard of Earthsea. It started a whole bunch of stuff and it's super important. Uh, it just was not that interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. I have a hard time sometimes, uh, I think taking the echoes of it out of the other work, right? So I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, that's just like these 40 other pieces of other novels pop into my head or, or movies. Uh, you know, I've been watching The Magicians and I just realized reading Hersey, I'm like, oh yeah, the, the Magicians leans on a lot of stuff, but there's the second book in particular leans heavily on Earthsea and some of that's happening in the TV series now as well. Yeah. Um, so it colors, you're like, it's like retcon coloring of what your initial impression was. So I remember being blown away by this as a kid and just thinking, I haven't read anything like this. It changes my mind about the world. The thing about, you know, even skin color where I'm reading this as a, as a white kid and all everybody's white in every book. And suddenly it mentions skin color. And I'm like, Oh, I have to repaint the pictures in my head to understand this and recontextualize what I've just read. And does it mean something? All of that was really profound. And then of course, now you have, um, I mean, as Scott says, just so, so much as, so much use, there's like a, not a perfection of Wizard of Earthsea, but, but given that she introduced a world in which this exists, then you have all the pieces on the board that other authors can play with and they don't have to define those, right? You don't have to explain any of these things. It's like there's an orc in every novel now that deals with fantasy and you don't have to explain what an orc is, even though maybe you should. I think the thing that got me, uh, sort of invested in it reading it this time around like i say for the first time in about 15 years uh wasn't just the sort of obviously you get that kind of slightly warm nostalgic feeling of reading something that you remember reading as a kid but what struck me reading it this time was the humanity in it uh despite you know because we're so used especially with pulp fantasy stuff to that kind of the equivalent of space opera where characterization is you know kind of glossed over a little and everybody's a bit two-dimensional and characters emotions often aren't all that important and their inner life really isn't looked at very much uh whereas in this i felt as an adult i appreciated that a whole lot more there is so much of that in this book there are i mean there's the whole bit about uh, with him being teased and bullied by jasper at the school is Uh i mean that struck me as a kid and it struck me again as an adult like as a kid i remember reading that and i wanted to punch jasper because (laughs) you know i was like i felt it because it was you know that was uh what kids would do to me at school and i was like yeah i want to hit me but as an adult i'm reading it and thinking well he a like he's a dick but i also want to like shake ged (laughs) and go like no don't fall for it you fool don't you know don't rise or sink to his depths don't get let him get a rise out of you and that really struck me as kind of that's difficult to get across especially to an adult i think but i think the sympathy for the kids you know with that ability to look back and think oh what i was like when i was a a teenager um i think that really succeeded and then the other thing is the struggle within you know the whole uh concept of him being tainted by the darkness because of his pride having to come to terms with it um i mean that's been a huge influence on my own work as well i can't even tell you (laughs) how many stories of my own i've written or even just conceived that have got that sort of struggle at the heart of it and then on the final page and uh, i even took a photo of this when i was rereading it and tweeted it because it was so beautiful i'm i just let me read this passage uh after ged merges with his shadow 
she, there's this wonderful little passage that she, where she writes, he had neither lost nor won, but naming the shadow of his death with his own name had made himself whole, a man mm. who, knowing his whole true self cannot be used or possessed by any power other than himself, and whose life therefore is lived for life's sake and never in the service of ruin or pain or hatred or the dark. She wasn't even 40 when she wrote that. <laughs> How can you be so wise <laughs> at such a young age? I, it brought me to tears as I was reading it, because again, as a sort of, as an adult, as an older man, thinking back, I'm like, my goodness, this is, there's so much compassion and wisdom in this uh, book and in the humanity of the characters that it really, that's what draws me in now as an adult more than the whole, you know, the magic and the spells and the wizards and that's and the dragons and that's all wonderful. But really it's the humanity of the characters that very much gripped me throughout the whole of this reread. The, uh, so my wife's a young, uh, well, a children's librarian, but she, she, that means including young adult. And uh, one of the things that I was struck by here is young adult fantasy is like an industry now. If it wasn't before Harry Potter, uh, it certainly is now. And there's no end to the amount of young adult fantasy. I'm sure it was always there, right? Because you can think about C.S. Lewis and you can think about Earthsea and there are other, um, there are other examples, but now you can't turn around without seeing this. And I was struck by that, that this is from an earlier time where these stories were not as easy to come by um the i'm sure there were wizarding schools in young adult novels before this maybe but i i read that part and i was like oh boy you know like this is much more yeah i'm not so sure it may may not be this may this may this may be i i I haven't done the research but it's entirely possible that this is uh is the first sign of that so that that all struck me just again that this is this is uh a, a a definitive work that helped shape what is now what now is incredibly common but you can't take it for granted because it started in this other place um having never read it before the thing that struck me the most about it, i mean i liked it I, I i like that there's that other layer as antony put that that the um as an adult you look at it and you say wow she really is talking about th- this per the, it, it like any really good story a classic story um gets evolution over time and the the whole uh, metaphor of the fact that he is chasing his shadow or his shadows or, or alternately his shadow is chasing him it goes back and forth and that in the end the victory quote unquote is to accept it and bec- and allow it allow both sides of your nature to uh, make a whole which is such a um that's you know that's that's a harder ending and it's a less obvious ending and to have that layer there i really liked but i will say the the one thing that really struck me in reading this is that i am so used to reading thousand page fantasy novels and (laughs) and the thing that really blew me away is that there are little there are a few little incidents in this like the like the dragons where he kills all the baby dragons um but it's a really straightforward story that goes from point to point relatively quickly uh, it doesn't feel long and it doesn't feel overstuffed and that's the thing that makes it feel very different than modern work where um i i, I she's not trying she, even though she is world building and she's doing a lot of stuff right she's got a lot of corners of the world that are painted in with some detail it's kind of not the point it's this fairly simple story about how ged you know got his shadow back so yeah the the thing that that I kind of kept coming back to uh, reading it is is the style of it 
almost felt like Grimm's fairy tales to me. It felt like it felt like a fairy tale because uh, a lot of another thing a lot of modern yeah. writing has is an awful lot of the the inner dialogue of, mm-hmm. of characters and and you know seeing people from the inside and you certainly get some of that. I mean, as Antony said, there's some serious humanity going on here and and you know you're watching this this character st- struggle with the 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 different sides of themselves, but that's that's not while it's a focal point of the the story, it's not really a focal point of the novel in the same way the novel really is about uh what is what is happening and you do move from from point to point very very much like like a fairy tale which i think is one of the reasons i liked it so much because i grew up in my two of my favorite books as a kid were two pretty hefty tomes of Grimm's fairy tales and and i think in part it might have also been a little bit of why the other kids in my class did not like it as much because the other stuff that they had been reading had was was probably written uh, closer to contemporary time so it was it, it was a little bit more fleshed out in that way and also she has Laguin just has a very beautiful and somewhat spare way of writing i mean the language is is utterly gorgeous but it's not the easiest to just sort of like skim through and uh, and let it wash over you. You actually have to do a little bit of work to to get the the meaning out of her sentences. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think that it is a thing that it makes her her writing, honestly, in everything that she's ever written that I've read, feel like it's it's more of a chore for my brain. I don't want to say chore, but more of an effort, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing for my brain to to do. Whereas there are an awful lot of books, an awful lot of fantasy books that I can just sort of like zip through really fast, and it's a completely different reading experience and i think that both are good but i think that the kids in my class uh only wanted the one and not the other <laughs> so they didn't come out loving this book well, i think one point you make um is uh or I'll, I'll make it maybe slightly differently but it's the, it's the same it's the same point i'm going to repeat what you say in a different way is uh it's very uh narrative right there's not the you it's not um pages and pages and pages of dialogue i i didn't go back and count but i think there's relatively little directly quoted dialogue it's always kind of describing the scene. So it's a little bit removed, which makes it a, a kind of quieter because, um, and as, as Jason said, there's not that much, you know, dramatic action, you know, sailing out in the sea and the sea becomes stiller and stiller and then you can walk on it is not exactly the stuff of action. Um, but you know, there's this, the scene like the screeching castle kind of scene, which is pretty <laughs> with the, with the frightening stone in the middle of it is, is a pretty good bit of horror, um, in the middle of the book too. But, uh, I, I was thinking this reminds me, there's like two great, um, high school English words. You get, uh, Bildungsroman, right? It's coming of age. And it's also, it's picaresque. It's like literally this is the thing was a criticism of some novels, right? Is that your, uh, a picaresque novel goes from place to place to place to place and nothing necessarily happens. Um, Don Quixote is, you know, apparently the model for but this does have an arc. It is a journey, but it's also this journey of accumulating experiences as he goes from place to place and understands. But I, I think I was most surprised by the end of it that I'd forgotten that there is no primary plot and that the secondary plot is Ged redeeming himself and sort of saving the world from the thing he created that's so awful and trying to hunt him down. It's the primary plot is his journey in a way that I think most novels would say like, well, he did this big act, and then the secondary thing is he saved himself. So, you know, the only thing he's really doing is he's trying to redeem a terrible, terrible tear he uh, tore in the world. Um, and the, the other <laughs> one other related thought, too, is about that kind of the background in a, um It reminds me of Astro City, of that comic book series, um, 
that there was an incomparable episode of a bit ago, um, where the main action is never what's going on, like superheroes saving worlds or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the, it's some of the inner lives and the things happening, the moral stories, uh, told in small that are actually the important part. And I thought Astro City actually feels very modeled, you know, in theory, not directly on this as well, that you're, you are, um, you don't care, you know, he kills dragons, yes, but the killing the dragons part is not as important as what he discovered from the dragons and moving on his journey. So, um, you mentioned, uh, Don Quixote. I'm going to go back even further, which is to say, uh, when I was a kid, I had a kid's edition of the Odyssey. Mm. And of course, that is, Ooh. if you're going to have your classic sailing around and having various <laughs> adventures, yeah. let's just go all the way back there. And that was actually, I really was reminded of that here, where mm-hmm. he's kind of going from place We're to place. Sailing again. And sailing from place to place. And and in a big, you know, with a bunch of different islands and things and different cultures that he's and monsters and things like that. And it really reminded me of that. Now, it's different than he's not trying to get home quite, but he's he's chasing this creature. But it really did remind me of that, too, in the sense and, and not just that, but the way it's told, um, as we've all said, like the 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 way these stories are told, they are like little fables, little myth um, droplets that come in, like with the uh, the um, the dragon island but and the house or the castle and all of these things and i i I, it 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 felt in reading it it felt very much like she was plumbing our kind of like you know mythology like how 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 myths are told and and throwing that in there which i know you know tolkien did that too but it, it really felt like that right down to the fact that yes it is a dude on a boat floating around getting into <laughs> r- trouble I mean, there it is well, when you've created a world that is literally nothing but islands you know you've you've got to do that i think uh it is picaresque but you you have to do that when you've created a world that consists of yes. lots and lots of places to go we're just gonna go to this one place we're not gonna go anywhere we're just gonna right. there's islands don't go there one of the things i love about the book that i remember loving as a kid was all the was the fact that she covered because i looked at the map when i first read it i remember looking at the map and thinking my god this world is enormous she's never going to cover it all and then she does actually cover most of it in the first book quite extraordinary but also as part of that uh, all the little throwaway lines the kind of i don't know her equivalents of the whole you know the kessel running 12 parsecs thing where she talks about right in the intro about the boy who becomes the archmage and his quest to for the ring in the tombs of atuan and combine that with the map and all these and you look at the you know, wait, wait a second i want to know about this i want to know about his quest for the ring i want to know about this old one that's it trapped in a stone in a castle. I want to know about what he did at the tombs of Atuan and how he became an archmage and all these, like Jason said, it's not overstuffed and that's partly, but it still feels like a whole world. Right. And I think that's partly achieved by all these little throwaway lines that hint at a much bigger story and a much bigger world that is just kind of waiting to be explored. Mm-hmm. And and as a word nerd, um, I love that not just the magic system, but the like the essence of everything that she's created in the world, this world itself is all based on on the actual true naming of it. And I know mm-hmm. she's not the first person to you know deal with names as a, as a, a magic system like that. That goes way 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 back. No, but the fact the magic system isn't a system. I, that's right. I, that's one of the things I really like about it. There isn't. Mm-hmm. There are no rules. Yep, 
it's just it's 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 based on the 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 original words for these things which actually there was there was a short story that preceded this where she first sort of dabbled in the earth sea uh, earth sea realm and uh and it was i can't remember the name of it something about naming things and it's where she first sort of goes into the the idea of that and then like you said she builds it out into this amazing world with all of these different islands and and if you do read farther on in the series you get to find out some of the things that she she hints at and talks about but it's all just sort of sort of sprinkled in there and that in that very first book i love her approach to magic and the fact that it is mysterious and confusing and the you know things change you can do one thing one day and it'll do one thing and you do the same thing the next day and it might do another and you know i i'm really i wouldn't say i'm against D&D style magic systems in novels, but I rarely think that they do, you know, that fiction any favours. And so I really like that that's not the case here. And it's just a complete mystery, completely enigmatic. So you said confusing. And I wanted to I wanted to jump in on that point, because that was actually one of the things that I I uh, found familiar in reading this book, that sometimes things would happen. And the way it usually would happen was that either the book would say or a character would say, well, of course, this has to happen because of this thing. And as a reader, I'd be like, of course, sure. Because it's, it's just like you don't know what that thing is. You don't know why that would be a rule. Everybody's acting as if it's obvious. And you seem and, and it makes it that much more mysterious. Like, I really don't know. And I thought, where else have I felt like this in a fantasy sort of so, sort of fantasy world that is a bunch of stories about a young person coming of age and there's there's things in it that I don't understand that everybody seems to act like they're obvious and I thought I thought to myself man this is like a Miyazaki movie and then I went and found oh. out that in fact <laughs> they made the, the, the studio yeah. uh, Ghibli actually made a an Earthsea adaptation which really? which uh which loosely which combines People don't yeah, like it, but very good. loosely yeah, combined yeah. several. But I kind of want to see it now because I, I laughed when I found that out because I swear I didn't know that. And I was sitting there thinking, <laughs> is this a Miyazaki movie? Did he make this into it? Maybe I vaguely knew that there was something because it felt I, I actually had those moments where I felt like, wow, this would make a great Miyazaki movie. And I think maybe if if it had been him making it himself and it had just been an adaptation of the first book it might have been a great miyazaki movie because it 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 really did it gave me that feel like among the things that this thing feels like it feels like i i I, he's got to have been influenced by it because the kind of fairy tale-esque stories that he tells seem very uh very similar in some ways to what is in earthsea anyway and there's that very homely thing where you know i want to i think this is i don't know if it says miyazaki but it's a very homely little bit where he goes becomes a wizard of that tiny island that's where all the dragons are basically and he um and he's humble right he knows that he's basically messed up his entire life he's got a journey for the rest of his life he doesn't know how it's going to resolve but what does he do he kind of learns how to sail and he becomes friends with that uh with the uh, fisher and uh the family and it's like a little life and it's very sweet and it's all real it's this kind of friendship he's never had before and kinship and he's important to the community and then the fisher's child you know becomes ill and then he goes to the land of the dead you know that the, I, I found that whole thing very moving anything to do with children of child death there's so much of it we we um, wind up getting sorry that's i'm referencing magic tavern i apologize um but it's uh i found that whole bit because it was so small and so real compared to some of the bigger forces, even though he's going into the land of the dead, it still, um, you know, metaphorically feels like what someone would do for someone else. 
talking about influences, the other one who uh, I think, I don't think I've ever actually explicitly heard him say that Ursula Le Guin was an influence, but I have to think that she was a big influence on Neil Gaiman because mm. so much of his work reminds me of, so much of his fantasy work anyway, reminds me of the Earthsea books. And something Jason said there in particular made me, sort of reminded me of that again, which was this notion that there are rules and everybody in the world knows them, yeah. but we're not necessarily going to explain them to the reader. And Gaiman does that a lot. Yep. Coraline, yes. Ocean at the End of the Lane, I love that. Uh, gra- Graveyard Book. So many of his novels do that. Even Sandman had elements of that in it where, yes, of course there are these yeah, rules and we sure. all know them, but we're not going to explicate them for you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Everybody knows this. Uh, okay. <laughs> Great. I dig it. Like, don't, don't leave me by the nose. I love not being laid, led by the nose. And it's so hard, I'm sure, for authors to avoid that because you want your world to be, I mean, Anthony, you can speak to that directly, but you want your world to be explicable to readers, but at the same time, there's something so wonderful about implicitness and unfolding and having to do the work in my own head to create a headcanon that's compatible with the world I'm reading to understand it. Like mystery is okay. Yeah, and it, it, I think it makes it feel more more, more real, more like itself because it just, it, it, it's taking itself seriously enough that it's not trying to, trying to, trying to explain too much, you know. It's, it's not like you know me think the the book doth protest too much it's it's just doing its thing and being what it is and and it is subtle in the way it handles lots of those things and it you know it took me like a good halfway through the book before i sort of figured some of the stuff out again even after having having read it a bunch of times and and yeah i i i can't remember when i because i've read it a bunch of times i don't remember how many readings it took me before i realized that ged wasn't white and i had uh i mean before like it it wasn't really right of me to say that everybody's black everybody is pretty much of color except for people from oskill basically and uh it vetch is black and everybody else like uh, has has varying shades of color which i think is a wonderful reflection of the world but the first time that those things stuck stuck out at me enough to actually notice it i was just like it was a real eye-opening experience because this is a thing that i had read probably a half a dozen times before before I got to the point of actually noticing that because I was very much wrapped up in, in my own perspective and my own life and and I think that it was it was just a that was another really uh, formative moment for me that was provided by Ursula K. Le Guin so thanks lady yeah thank like I said she's been a massive influence on me so I need to you know I have to sort of thank her for so not specific details but again rereading Earthsea almost every other page I was like oh yeah I do that <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, this is the time of year when we remind you how you can support this podcast directly by becoming a member of The Incomparable. You can sign up for a monthly or annual pledge and you'll support us directly. Go to theincomparable.com slash members and sign up. You'll be asked to pick the shows on the network you'd like to support. If you just check the box for The Incomparable, your entire contribution will come to this podcast, but you can also check the boxes of other podcasts and your contribution will be shared among all of them. People who are members get lots of extras as a thank you for supporting us. There's exclusive bonus audio. The Bootleg Podcast lets you hear episodes of The Incomparable right after we record them without having to wait for the edited version to arrive sometime, sometimes many weeks later. There's also a members-only community. Since this is pledge season, many of the shows in the network are posting bonus content just for members. There's a whole season of Total Party Kill that's been posted for members. We're going 
going to do a commentary track like we've done. Uh, we've done two of those in the last year just for members where a bunch of people on this podcast watch a movie and talk about it while the movie's playing. And then you can play it back while you watch the movie. And it's like we're sitting there watching the movie with you and uh, making jokes because that's a thing we do. There are contribution levels at 5 10 and $20 per month, as well as annual equivalents if you only want to be charged once. And if you're already a member, it's easy to increase your pledge as well. If you get to a higher level, there are some special physical goodies in return at the at those high levels. So if you'd like to support us, there are plenty of ways to do it. And we really appreciate your support. We don't ask you throughout the year. We only do it this time of year. Go to theincomparable.com slash members to sign up. And thank you for listening. So uh, we should uh, move on to talk about the left hand of darkness. We have to go out in space now. Well, I guess space. Earth sea is in space. It, it's probably a planet. <laughs> well, it's in the sea. <laughs> it's in the sea. The sea it's may just go on forever. Planet. It's unclear. Yeah, yeah it's unclear. Either. But now we are going to go to space for the left hand of darkness, which did win the uh, Hugo and Nebula Awards. And a, it is a much more science fictional uh, story about a uh, a, a character named uh, Genli. Genli? I don't even know. Uh, hmm. he's, he's, he's a human from Earth. And he has been sent uh, to a planet called Gethin, which is um, populated by humanoid people. And in this universe, there are lots of different variants on human on different planets, which allows Le Guin to have some interesting explorations. And in this case, the people on Gethin are um, non-gendered most of the month, and then they have a period of Kemmer where they uh, take one of two binary genders uh, and it's basically they're in heat more or less. And that is the time where they, they uh, present as a specific gender and that is the mating period and all of that. So that is, that is the background. One of the interesting things here. And of course this is about an envoy who's trying to get this planet, which has different warring countries with their own political intrigue to come together and join the ecumen, which is like, you know, your federation basically um, of, of all the different uh, human worlds. And, uh, Things don't go well for the. the I, I one of the things that I had forgotten is you know they have extra people on the ship that is orbiting the planet so that if if the first envoy dies they, they wait they wait like ten years or whatever and then send another one but and and so he's in a tough situation being the first one out it can be hard and there is all this political intrigue he does not understand down on the planet which I think is one of the things in rereading it I found incredibly smart the idea that you don't have united planet governments where there's no political intrigue that is everybody every planet if you were to go down on it you would find all sorts of political intrigue and you are not from there and you don't understand it and so bad things happen there are he he's put in jeopardy he's he he has friends who are are taken away he he ultimately uh is taken away and he he ends up escaping to another country which is a totalitarian government which is also bad and then of course at the end there's a lot of skiing as Anthony pointed out earlier, because they, in order to escape the totalitarian country for the original country that they came from, uh, the, the envoy and a friend, the former prime minister of that country have to basically go across a, uh, the, the, the planet's pole 
an, an, an ice sheet in order to take the, you know, the long way around uh, through uncharted territory, basically. To, or there, there, Okay, it's charted. There's a really bad map that, it, that is referenced <laughs> in a couple of points. Poorly charted territory. Poor. Yeah. And then they, and, and in order to escape. And then, and, you know, in the end, uh, guess what? In the end, it all works out, but it's also very sad. Um, and that's the left hand of darkness. So, um uh, I'm going to be up front and tell you what I totally forgot. I, okay. So in the book, when they're out on the ice sheet, uh, <laughs> S. Draven, the, uh, the former prime minister, um, goes into Kemmer and what, and it makes things a little bit awkward between them. Um, um, in my memory, it was a little less awkward, if you get my meaning. <laughs> and that doesn't happen. They do not have... The, the male, uh, the male uh, Genley does not have sex with the female Kemmerd Estraven. That doesn't happen. It's more... That's that, my recollection, too, was I the same reaction. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's just... it's all, it, They don't. It Like, the book very clearly says they don't. But obviously, it's super awkward. And it, it's right, it's hanging right there, but it doesn't actually happen in the book. And I was like, oh, okay. I've thought the wrong thing for 30 years about what happens in this book. <laughs> it doesn't really change the, the, the narrative, like the meaning of those scenes. It is super awkward, but um, th- that, that's all. So, you know, that's everybody keeps to their side of the, of the tent. In of the tent, yeah. <laughs> I'd also like to compliment this book for it's got, even though okay, so the the long arduous journey that takes many many chapters is really you know Tolkien really pioneered that or or maybe the Bible, but uh, but <laughs> Ursula Guin has to one be given credit. One of the other. Ursula Guin has to be given credit for the the the, the plotting trek that and I lo- you know and I really do like this book, but that part of the book, the plotting trek across the endless tundra with uh, with manifest difficulties and nearly dying um you know that's we were talking about it in the slack team and i think there's like 50 i could just come up with example after example after example where you have the scene like that in the book it feels like it is an obligatory sci-fi trope now that you have to have a a long almost fatal trek across uh, impossible terrain and we owe that to her or you get books where that's basically half the entire novel these days. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from a, a, a winter place, uh, I, I really liked that part. <laughs> I, I, I did too. This is your morning commute. I think that's why it was more memorable to me. And maybe this is just because at, at that time in my life, I was more interested in the almost, you know, Jack London, you know, people versus nature kind of aspect of that, where they're mm-hmm. kind of alone with their thoughts and they're just trying to survive than I was with the political machinations, which as an adult, I was like, oh, I, I appreciate the political machinations that I have no memory of because obviously it didn't sink in. But the survival stuff I thought was especially, it was memorable, but very dramatic to me. So I didn't, I didn't mind um, all the skiing, although there is a lot of it. It's true. I mean, it's basically and- the Martian. It's like the Martian is is a, a great adaptation of part of this book. I'm not no <laughs> not the Martian, but you know, measuring out food quantities and so forth. It's very interesting. Anyway, I'm sorry. I really do like the book. <laughs> I didn't remember that part of it, um, but it, I think because my tastes have changed and I I wasn't into that sort of that that sort of thing when I was a younger reader. The part that the, the only part that I really remembered was just because it was so long ago was that there was a planet, and I remembered the fact Ooh. that the, uh, the 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 Gethenians were were ambisexual and i think i think the reason that i remember that is because i was so uncomfortable with it at the time and i will own that um, mm-hmm. i have i have grown a lot as a person and now i think i can look at it and think that's 
a fascinating sort of uh, examination of sexuality and how it affects how sexuality and gender specifically affects culture and society. But at the time, I had not been I had not been I might have still been actually in junior high and i had never really been exposed to to a whole lot of stuff with with any kind of of sexuality and certainly very very little examination of gender and i didn't know what to do with it and it made me kind of uncomfortable and since i was reading it in a vacuum i wasn't reading that book for school i didn't have anybody to sort of talk it over with and i just sort of put it down and was like that book's not for me and i'm really glad that we came back to it now because it is <laughs> fascinating and i don't know that i ever would have picked it up again because i was just left feeling you know like a confused kid mm-hmm. at the time. Scott, were you going to say something? You've been quiet. As, as is your want, you often are. <laughs> it is my nature. Uh, and it's no fun to be the one person when everyone is loving a book to say, well, it was not all that good. But uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, I, I enjoyed very much, except for the uh, let's walk slowly across the frozen tundra. <laughs> it's cold over out there. Over and over again. It's, it's very, very cold. cold. They, made the, very they, cold. They, they put up the tent again, Scott. And they got, they let me did. tell you about the sleeping bags. They're very good. <laughs> but I should say that, you know, uh, the thing I learned from reading both of these books is that Ursula K. Le Guin is, uh, her reputation is well, uh, earned because she is a fantastic writer. And even though, you know, I did not really like A Wizard of Earthsea, I appreciated how wonderfully it was written. Uh, and I really liked The Left Hand of Darkness because of, how wonderfully it was written and how, once again, I think, as you guys were saying in uh, Wizard of Earthsea, she builds this entire world, world universe, really, in a couple hundred pages. And this similar story now would be broken across probably three books that were like 800 pages long. Mm-hmm. And we'd probably get a whole lot more examination of the frozen tundra. Uh, <laughs> we would, we would, we'd certainly no. get a, a lot more, uh, a glimpse into both the governments and, uh, you know the machinations. We'd certainly get cutaway scenes to the the remote ship that is hiding yeah, sure. somewhere in the solar system. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just thought it was all fascinating. I love the idea that uh, this envoy uh, basically his life is going from planet to planet, and he's left his everyone he knows behind because now they're all dead because of relativistic time <laughs> travel, right? So he he basically is like, well, if I die here, they're just going to send another person, uh, and we'll keep sending them until they don't die. <laughs> um, and uh, But we won't land our ship. And that was the other thing, right? That, you know, uh, the people on this planet aren't quite sure that he's telling them the truth, and there's no way for him to prove it other than he has a little machine that he can type to talk to other people and they get responses. But, you know, if if an alien were to come to Earth now and look basically like us and say, look, I have a tablet that lets me communicate with people light years away, you'd be like, I don't think so, dude. Show me your spaceship. And he's like, no, I can't show you my spaceship because it would freak you guys out. You have to believe first and then I'll provide proof. Hmm. Exactly. I love the idea that it's, um, that part of that is that it, it, it deals with some of the hard sci-fi issue of like the Ansible is a wonderful creation. And of course, once having coined the word Ansible for, you know, instantaneous, uh, communication around the universe, everyone just uses that word. I love that it, it's, it's a great, it's a great sounding feeling word, but the fact of relativistic differences, uh, differences and sort of the, difficulty of just moving stuff around like we don't go into this universe where it's like yeah yeah they're not really aggressive but really this is some kind of empire it's like no no empires are ridiculous we (laughs) space is big it's really really big let me tell you how big it is we can't do that the only thing we can do we're not going to come and occupy your country or your planet we're not going to take it over 
all we can do is exchange information and improve communication across the far-flung elements of humanity because it just takes so goddamn long to get everywhere. The end. And and that is not a message of peace and harmony understanding so much of like realism of physics. There's, there's no point or ability to create an empire. And I love that she just briefly almost in passing deconstructs the entire notion of all of the space opera that precedes this book. That reminded me of. Uh, there's um, the Harry Harrison's books, the Stainless Steel Rat series. One of the uh, central notions of that is that, yeah, there is no interstellar warfare because it's just crazy expensive. It's <laughs> like, you can't do that. Nobody's got the resources to wage warfare on an interstellar basis. And I that, that was written not long after this book. And I did wonder, as I was reading this, hmm, I wonder if Harrison read that and thought, ah, yeah, that's a, you know, she solved that problem for me. <laughs> well, to be fair, this, this book takes place many hundreds of years, or well, several hundreds of years after the, the previous ones. And there was interstellar warfare. War and there was interstellar empire, but all of that has sort of collapsed in upon itself in this universe that she has created by the time this book rolls around. So she is she's also sort of dealt with the other side of it too. Oh no, you're, I'm sorry, you're totally right because there is, but it's it's like they're like we already did that, right? We tried it, and it doesn't work. It's kind of yeah, it's unsustainable, <laughs> and it was a previous age and. Anyway, now we're all just exchanging. Now it's just the internet, but it's, you know, interstellar. So yep. I want to explain myself about um, why I keep bringing up Ancillary Justice here. I feel like Ancillary Justice opens with an homage to uh, Left Hand of Darkness. The character, we have, we have uh, first off, there are, are gender um, issues embedded in, in Ancillary Justice because they always use female pronouns in that book, even though there are frequently... Uh, people of of different genders, but they're all all just gendered female in the writing, which is an interesting thing. And there are clues, but it does make you kind of think of every character differently because the language is not embedding a gender on, and placing it on people. But also, it begins uh, essentially with a, two characters, a kind of recognizable human um, a, male and a. It was ship ship AI put in a body who has no real direct relationship with the body. It's a very strange character and very interesting. And they are both kind of, uh, due to political intrigue, forced to trek across a very cold planet to find <laughs> safety and escape their yep. danger. So uh, I'm just going to... And it's very good, but it, it also is... is uh, and this is what I remembered correctly. I'm like, oh yeah, left hand of darkness is what's going on here. But I like one of the things I like about Anne Leckie's books is that is that they're doing uh, in a modern context something different but similar to what Le Guin is doing here. Which you know we I think it's really fascinating to read Left Hand of Darkness in 2018 and think about what we think about gender today because the conversation about gender today is very different than it was in 1969 when this book was yeah. published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the book is the book is really. Uh, I was actually shocked. I'm going to say it, shocked um, by how conservative it is. And I, I mean, it was obviously at the time it was uh, it was remarkable and difficult and hard to understand for people and shocking and all of these things because it introduced all kinds of new concepts and and challenged people about the nature of identity in a way that people were only beginning to be challenged about in, in very small places and, you know, all that, right? But then I was shocked about how often she used conventional terms as negatives, clearly sometimes using them to invoke a feeling where she described something as feminine or critiqued something in a certain way. And I could tell she was using that 
as a rhetorical device to get me to question it and other times using it reflexively and dismissing it. And I thought, wow, okay, I didn't expect that. I thought it was more forward than it is. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, one of the things it does that is what I love about science fiction in general is ask a big question that cannot be answered by conventional fiction. And in this case, I mean, at, if, if, if there's one question that the left hand of darkness is asking, and it's not, there are more of questions than that. It's what if there were no men and women? Like that is that is the question that is the big idea here, which is imagine a world where you don't have men and women, you just have people and gender doesn't exist. And yes, we have a ways of reproduction and, and all of that. But even then, you're not just one or the other. It kind of varies. And either partner can have a baby and like and, and that's and then let's see what happens with that and what would be the details and how would the culture be different from ours and what if we sent somebody from more or less our culture into it and they would be viewed as a oh what do they call him is a pervert right yeah um it's just like that is to me that is what a science fiction novel should do is ask a huge question like that that you have to imagine because it's not something you could try out in the world you have to imagine a totally different world and 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 then she goes through it and it, it, it uh, it's amazing even though our perception of it has undoubtedly changed in 50 years the other thing that she does so well is get across how lost and sort of uh, adrift the envoy is in this world because of its society being so alien, partly as a result of the whole ambisexuality and people being in camera and what have you, but also just alien notions as well. And I think you do need, I agree with you, but I think you need both of those things to have a really successful SF novel, because otherwise then you just have a polemic on a philosophical question, which, <laughs> right. you know, could be great, but not an SF novel. Whereas here, you've got the whole business of this Shifgrathor and yes. Kemmer itself and the Doth strength, whatever the hell that is. And all of these things, I've read this book and I still don't fully understand what most of these things are. You know, you get in a car crash and you can lift, you can lift the car. That's the Doth strength, I think. Although it's not, right? They, you, but you it's like, not because you can induce it you can induce yourself. It, yeah. And then when you do, you collapse and you need to recover for like three or four days. And it's just like... Not everybody can do that. That's sort of like he, he's a monk. Right. He's raised you can as a only do it if you're an adherent it. of some weird old religion. That's what I mean. It's, <laughs> it's, I it's find your so lack of faith <laughs> disturbing so judgy about weird old religions <laughs> i think i get it but i wouldn't i wouldn't be a hundred percent confident myself trying to interact in a society where that exists and i think that's a that's a good thing that's a reflection on how well she gets the concept across but while also completely obfuscating how it actually works and making it feel completely alien, it's it's quite remarkable. Don't forget the mind mm-hmm. speech, which is another feature of this universe. Oh God, I which is all about that. It's just that people we haven't <laughs> yeah. mentioned it. But oh, by the way, all the humans they they are telepathic, but all your telepathic messages must be true. That you can't lie. Yeah, what a strange concept. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I had completely forgotten about the religions in this book, too, and the whole thing about the Handara and the whole, like, ecstatic future-telling, like, prophecy that can oh, yeah. make them all basically destroy themselves, and the incredible complexity, the number of different people of different, you know, different states of Kemmer, you need a pervert, you need these seers. Um, that was, I just, I, that was delightful and unexpected. I'd kind of forgotten that interlude in the woods. Yeah, right, right. 
Right. And he asks a question and he gets an answer, which is not usually what happens with oracles. And the answer isn't <laughs> that useful. That's the great part is he's like, he's, they're like, if you ask a straightforward question, you might get a good answer. He asks it. Well, you know, will you be part of the ec- uh, Ecumen in five years? Yep. And they're like, okay. Well, that means no matter what I do, I've succeeded. So cool, but it doesn't affect his own path or narrative at all. Right. And now they're going to try to kill you. <laughs> so exactly. So it'll all work out. It's fine. Yeah. And the, the book that this reminded me most of, and I, I talked about this in our Slack channel briefly, is uh, The Sparrow, uh, oh, yeah. because it has much of the similar uh, kind of alien n- culture and trying to figure it out and just screwing it up completely <laughs> uh, and not know. And, you know, speaking of weird old religions, Roman Catholicism comes in and, you know, is it adds a layer to that. Ha ha, take that, Catholics. Uh, <laughs> uh, send your emails to Jason. Uh, <laughs> uh, but and, uh, that's a book I love. So and I, I clearly saw the, the, the influence of The Left Hand of Darkness after, of course, reading The Left Hand of Darkness because I hadn't read it before I read The Sparrow. Uh, um, and so that that delighted me as well. There was one other comparison that came to mind, funnily enough, with a book that was published the same year when Genli is uh, in the communist country. Sorry, the other country yes. that has the, uh, you know, and the not at all communist country. 1984 uh, Republic. Yeah, that has the, the other system of politics. It's not called Oregon. It's called Orgarine. She's from Oregon. I know. I, ke- so I kept thinking it Ar- as Oregon, yeah. Um, <laughs> but when he goes there and he gets uh, basically sent to Siberia, you know, like sent, uh, mm-hmm. vanished and sent off to the camps um, and then has the whole journey there and has to escape and come back across the ice. It reminded me of, there's a book by John Brunner, one of my favourite British SF authors, called Into the Slave Nebula, which Mm. was published the same year. And it's a very different book. It's much more pulpy for a start, but it has a very similar part where the main character is almost by accident uh, taken off to become a slave and work as a slave and has to basically fight his way out of it and come back to civilization to prove that he's still alive and thereby achieve victory. I just thought that was so, such a weird coincidence that both of these books with that huh. notion Funny. published in the same year. Also, I do recommend Into the Slave Nebula. It's very pulpy, but it's very fun. <laughs> I want to, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about gender because I think there's, or gender and identity because, uh, I mean, that's obviously a big, underlying part of the book, but it's uh, through the lens of, uh, you know, what's going on with transgender people in 2018, the fights that they're having and trying to look at, uh, you know, I don't have enough of a historical thing that like, you know, the year I was born practically when this book was written, what it was like to be transgender or what feelings you would have, how you'd express that. I know it was obviously vastly worse, but clearly the same percentage of people because it's an identity and you know biological identity and other issues are tied up would be feeling that way and i i think reading the book makes me wonder you know how much how much how much in reading this book today can we understand it through the light of its time um and in particular because i think she does play a lot with uh, st- I think she does adopt a lot of the notion that the default is male, that as challenging as this book is, a lot of the behavior that she defines as sort of standard and baseline comes from, a, you know, the neutrality is sort of a masculine view of the world. It's more logical. It's more dispassionate. Um, and that she paints everything that's sort of smoother, softer, more emotional in feminine terms. So she's still ascribing very strongly to role stereotypes, even in a world that's ostensibly mostly gender most of the month. Um, and then there's also, I was just actually spotted something, there was some criticism apparently at the time, which I, I just 
I didn't know was waged against it is the, the heteronormative nature of it as well. And of course, you know, in 1969, it's not strange that when you're challenging everything about gender, identity, and sexuality, that you're going to still be, uh, cl- uh, clinging to certain kinds of notions that you're part of. But I, I wonder how challenging this book is. I don't know, today versus when it came out. I, I just keep thinking about, did it, push forward. I mean, Jason, to your point, you know, obviously it's, she was exploring a particular set of issues. She didn't have to solve all of society's issues. And it's a rousing novel. It's a, it's a book that's a great work of fiction and it doesn't have to solve a problem, right? It proposes some interesting ideas and it works through them in a way that you could only work through in this genre. But I still, I wonder how revolutionary it is at some level uh, with this lens so far back. I think you only have to look at things like Ancillary Justice and the reaction to that uh, and Cameron Hurley's work as well to see that it would still be... Somebody wrote this book now, even in 2018, it would still be considered, I think, quite revolutionary and quite sort of, you know, uh, iconoclastic again. Yeah, I mean, she might uh, engage with it differently now, Um but I, do, I agree that I, I think that what it's trying to talk about is very, you know, very specific and 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 uh, and I think it does a, a pretty great job of it. But, yeah, I can see it like I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's engaging with the questions of you, know, you talked about it being heteronormative. Like, I'm not sure it's engaging with that at all. It's like that's right. not what the book's about. Mm-hmm. The book is about gender roles, not about sexual orientation. Really, it's about gender roles more than that. And and the role and and, and gender as something that's perform. What is it? Uh, gender's performative and society's heteronormative. There's a rhyme in there somewhere. <laughs> that's good. Um, and, but but I think that, that the first is what's going on there, and that that um, you know she would probably say in the world that she invented. The camera is camera is uh, intended for reproduction. Um, what she doesn't do is say, "Oh well." And then you know, some people when they're in camera prefer the same uh, gender, and so they never have babies, but they can adopt or whatever. Like she doesn't go down that path. But I'm sure you know, in a modern uh, version of this, she might do that. It's just kind of not what the book's about. And also, to in order to to push back against you know, or at least uh, identify uh, gender roles and sort of determine what a society would be like when you don't have gender you kind of have to have something to examine up against so you're you're sort of stuck with the heteronormative heteronormativity because that is what we are looking at a world that you know that that doesn't have that if you if you totally get rid of heteronormativity then you've kind of already done the work that she's doing with this book let's not forget there are two perspectives in this book too which is which can be an issue when you're reading it because several people (laughs) got tripped up on that because it goes a long time where the envoy is the uh, narrator and then all of a sudden Estraven is the narrator and you're like oh uh, this is the other person now but what that book does do is let you and and by the way I think the the audiobook doesn't have a different narrator for the other oh. character which is probably a problem they probably should the audiobook of this should probably have two readers because it has two voices or three because you also have uh, the the myths and fairy tales that are I suppose sprinkled in between that could be yeah somebody else could be our, our uh, with a little plummy uh accent telling us myths and fairy tales uh the but that that all uh is part of it too right because then you've got the two different perspectives because the the perspectives of the people on this planet do not have the this understanding of uh the human perspective of of gender at all but uh but uh generally does 
Yeah, and also, uh, just in passing too, it's interesting because when the sexuality is explored, um, there's all these interesting notions that are just kind of all thrown in. I don't mean in a bad way, but the, she barely has time to explore further things. Like, this is a, um, a promiscuous society with no guilt. That when you go into Kemmer, you can Kemmer with somebody you know, you can form permanent pairs. There's incest is allowable under certain circumstances. Um, and that's part of the plot as well. And, uh, and then, but it's also, it's like you can just go into a Kemmer house. And, you know, you can find somebody else and you, your, your pheromones or whatever is, uh, cause you to assume roles. And that is obviously a very 1960s idea too, but it's just kind of presented in the mix that like the sexuality is not just, um, more complicated, the biological part of it and the roles, but also that there's like, there's no guilt about certain things and it's much less of a, um, there's just much less uh, overhead to do with sexuality because they deal with it as a very small portion of their um, overall uh, existence. Yeah. And everybody gets Kemmer leave. Like we don't even have you know, maternity <laughs> yeah. leave in every country. <laughs> like you just it's automatically assumed that you will get time off from work every month because everybody just needs it. Well, that's the old joke, isn't it? You know, if men got pregnant, suddenly everybody would get <laughs> yep. maternity leave for oh, like three man. years. That's I just want two days a month for my cramps, you guys. That's all huh. I'm asking. Very reasonable. Very reasonable. I like the politics here, too, because they're intertwined with the culture, as politics is. But I do like the fact that we see the two different countries and they do have these different systems. And, and when he's in the uh, democracy... Uh, which is not really a democracy, right? It's a kingdom, basically. But it's like, but there's a prime minister and there's politics and there's like, and you get the sense that like, oh boy, this place, you know, is a mess and, and there's there's all this intrigue and it, and it might go all horribly wrong and the king won't make a decision and it gets really frustrating. And then you go to the other place and you're like, oh no, like this place is much worse because it is 1984 it doesn't have good food. incorporated. It doesn't have good clothing. Yeah. It's the Soviet Union, basically, is what they're saying. You know, that that's that's 1969. Which I find mm. fascinating because Ursula K. Le Guin was uh, an avowed anarchist. So. Well, so all the governments are bad. she was a socialist. See? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I think she was an anarchist. Oh, right. At some point in her life, anyway, that that may have changed. Yeah. Which is the book with the two planets? Is that the dispossessed that have yes, um, that, orbit each other? And one is like a super irritating anarchy planet, and the other is like a super horrible materialism planet. So her anarchy planet <laughs> is interesting, but it's very, very irritating. Yeah. Also. And in here, I mean, then I, I am kind of a sucker for these kind of uh, uh, oppressive governments in, in fiction, where you get to see the details of like they have secret police, and and and, and the way it sinks in too, because they're like, we got to get to the river we got to get across we got to get out of here because he's like been banished and and he's going to die but he's been saved and they and and somebody takes him across to the other side it's like all right we made it and then you just keep sinking further and further and like oh yes welcome friend oh he's with the secret police and it just gets worse and worse until eventually he's a prisoner in the gulag like i really like that progression of you you think the grass is greener maybe but it's it's not the the annoying king that's a better place to live than over here Actually, a, a Futurama bit that's very much like um, the. Like, I mean, this is horrible because the work camp is they keep drugging him with the drug that's obviously killing him because of his biology, yeah. and uh, it just you know. And there's the bit where Fry thinks he's a robot, and he, uh, he and he's in a robot mental institution in Futurama, and they just keep like it's time for peaceful therapy, and they bang him on the head with a hammer, and lights go off, and rats are you know. It's just uh, not compatible with uh, that yeah. person's. 
actual yeah. existence. There's an old quote that is often attributed to Churchill. I'm not sure if it was him who said it. Uh, it I think that might be apocryphal, but it's a wonderful quote, which is that uh, democracy is the absolute worst form of government apart from all the other ones. R- wrapping up about Left Hand of Darkness, I feel like this... We talked about how Wizard of Earthsea, like, because of when it was written, it was very important at the time and is so influential in some ways and as part of this kind of wave that now this kind of book is written all the time and is everywhere. I look at Left Hand of Darkness and I think it feels it feels modern and timely and in a way that Wizard of Earthsea feels kind of like, oh, I see how this is. This is nice. This is a nice kind of old style YA book. And Left Hand of Darkness, I don't feel that way. Left Hand of Darkness, like, that's why I say people talk about Insular Justice. They love it. She, it, she won lots of awards for it. And I look at Left Hand of Darkness and say, it's still relevant today. Like, I, I don't know if you all agree or disagree, but to me, this one felt like uh, still a pretty modern, pretty relevant book which is good given that it's 49 years old. Scott, what do you think? Is it uh does it does it still hold together? Will you read more Ursula Le Guin? Uh well that's a good question. I think I will eventually read more Ursula Le Guin. Uh I do think that if both of these books came out this year, the only one people would talk about would be The Left Hand of Darkness, just because mm-hmm. A Wizard of Earthsea, while important and of its time when it, you know, it, it started this whole thing, but if you put it in its current uh, genre now that it did a lot to make happen, uh, it would be overlooked. Uh, maybe not because it's written so well, but it wouldn't be as uh, important as it is, I think. Uh, but Left Hand of Darkness, I feel like, uh, I'm agreeing with you, Jason, is, right. is it, it feels like it could have been written, you know, last year, and uh, it, it is very interesting. It probably would be longer if it were written last year. But, <laughs> uh, because, you know, every book now has to be gigantic. But um, yeah, I think it's really good, and and I'm glad that you made me read the, both of these books, Jason. So when you I, say eventually you'll read more, you mean when I assign you more? or uh, Probably. <laughs> yes, I have so many <laughs> There's so many books to read, it's true. Jason. <laughs> it's true. Uh, everybody else, what, what do you what do you feel like in in, in revisiting Left Hand of Darkness? I mean, we know Erica has turned around on it, which is good because I, I ha- well, you know, I'm not going to say that I love this book. Um, I will say that I kind of liked it. Like, I don't think I'm going to read it again. It's probably my second least favorite of of all of the Hainish novels, still with the Dispossessed, which is the one about the the, the two annoying planets. Uh, probably my <laughs> least favorite. Although I should revisit that one too, uh, which I will. Um, but but yeah, they're both of those books are very focused on sort of like the the political machinations and the politics and stuff, which is not not my happy place. I prefer, um, you know, spacey stuff about people on journeys, which this has that, but it's also got the other stuff, too. Uh, but I did definitely turn around in terms of of recognizing the good parts of the book. And I'm I am, I'm still really glad that I, I read it again because because I, I can now see it for the excellent book that it is. It's just not so much for me. Whereas Wizard of Earthsea, I was really glad to read it again because I just love that book and I will continue to read it again and again every so often. Uh, in part because it doesn't take that much time. And as Scott said, there are a lot of books. So, you know, shorter is is better in some cases. I'm pretty much the same in that I will I, I will almost certainly read Wisdiversity again at some point. Uh, as I've as I mentioned before, I've already reread it several times throughout my life. Whereas this is the first time I'd read Left Handed Darkness, and I don't know if I'll read it again. Um but I do agree with Jason that if they were yeah, that this is kind of it feels like the more 
not necessarily the more important book, but the more sort of, uh, well, important book, I guess. <laughs> Just but that's, but mm-hmm. maybe that's because, as Scott said, fantasy, modern fantasy owes so much to Wizard of Earthsea already that there's very little in it now reading it, you know, sort of in 2018, that feels unusual that we haven't seen since done by other authors. Whereas, as Jason said, there is plenty in Left Hand of Darkness that really hasn't been picked over in the same way by subsequent authors. And I don't know if that's because it does ostensibly deal with gender and sexuality, which is a, you know, a subject that SF has had some trouble with over the years and is maybe only really in the last five to ten years starting to get to grips with, thankfully through a large influx of female authors and readers who are demanding demanding that sort of uh, fiction that deals with those issues. Uh, and so it feels like, yeah, we just haven't had as many people influenced by Left Hand of Darkness as Wizard of Earthsea. But I hope that that's going to, you know, that that is changing and it will continue to change because I think in terms of the the issues uh, in square, scare quotes, as it were, that it deals with, it's much more relevant and, as you said, modern. So, like I say, I don't know if I'll read it again, but I'm glad I did. And I actually kind of wish that I had read it earlier. I wish that I had read this when I was younger um, because it clearly is a very, very important work. What about you, Glenn? Oh, I'm really glad I reread these because now I remember what they're about. That's that's for starters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I think they held up really well. I, I uh, Left Hand of Darkness had a different tone than I remembered I, because, like I say, I remembered some outlines of the plot and I kind of remembered the the whole arc better. I knew what the journey was, um, but it was um, much more subtle and interesting than I recalled, which is I should remember because I remembered it being really good. So I'm glad I refreshed my memory at least once in my life. Uh, and, um, Wizard of Earthsea, I think had uh, my memory of the first book was colored by a lot of the more narrative stuff that happens in later ones, uh, where there's much more of a plot to get through. And, um, I even like, you know, I, I walked away from, uh, I did not walk away from Omalas. I walked away from Ursula Le Guin when she started to get more, I don't know, it felt like she'd become this earthy crunchy. And I thought her stuff was, had, uh, there was a book she wrote in uh, 1985 was a long way, long way home or coming home again or something like that. And a friend had me read it. And apparently I was incredibly contemptuously dismissive of it in a way that he could quote back to me. And I'd forgotten I'd said he was terribly offended by how little I liked that book. So I didn't read her for a number of years or sort of middle period stuff. Uh, and then read The Other Wind, which is uh, kind of the conclusion to the Earthsea. It's like a little bit of a retcon, but it doesn't uh, destroy the original books. It's not a retcon like a lot of authors kind of trying to build on an earlier reputation. It's a reinterpretation that I think makes the earlier books seem more meaningful. So I, I actually recommend The Other Wind uh, if you go through all the early Earthsea stuff and want to come back to it. Um, and I, I've um, I've always loved Lathe of Heaven and I hadn't read the book. I'd read that more recently. So I got a copy of that and read that and actually really love what she was doing in that. That's a very interesting bit of social commentary and very, it's a nice quick read. And there's also the super weird PBS movie from it and a less weird, but slightly more by the numbers, a miniseries adaptation too. So if um, it's an, Lathe of Heaven is interesting to explore because the, you can then go and kind of see media interpretations of it that are, that are different and valid as well. Yeah. That's one of my favorites of hers. Congratulations on the Omelas reference. Well done. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, that one, and that's an extraordinary short story. That's, that's the other thing as well. Like, yeah, it's fantastic. Basically, but Anthony, I, every every day in America is the ones who walked away from Omaha. <laughs> but, but I've yeah. never I've never read any of the Earthsea books beyond the first, beyond the original trilogy, kind of for fear that they were that they would sully my memory if you like of that original trilogy but so you'd recommend them the, i've i don't remember if i read you know there's what like two, there's a tales of earth sea which is collected stories is there one other beyond the original trilogy but the other wind i think is very subtle i read it and i was shocked by how i mean i don't think i've ever read a later book in a series that maybe go like oh good i'm glad i read <laughs> I read this because right. it gives me a richer understanding. <laughs> I read it often out of bloody mindedness. And this one I felt it was an incredible, like, um, it wasn't a reworking of the whole mythology. It essentially was everything you thought that was true, everything that made self-consistent sense in this universe. We're now going to look at it again through fresh eyes, but we're not going to tell you you were wrong in how you read it because that's how it was being told to you. That's how the world worked through that view in the original books. So it doesn't reject her earlier work. It's like, um, and it's not a radical reinterpretation. It's just actually pretty beautiful and not even difficult. It's just very interesting. So I, it's one of the few late sequels that I would ever recommend in any series. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Both both Tehanu and The Other Wind. Um, oh, Tehanu. I haven't read that. I, I have not read that, so I need to go back and read that. Yeah, I think obviously. I, I remember Tehanu very clearly, and that it dealt very interestingly with, with gender, actually, because you didn't have, um, it, you know, she went back and forth. The, the POV character in A Wizard of Earth Sea is, is Ged, and then in The Tombs of Atuan, it's for a good chunk of it, it's a girl, and then sort of goes back and forth, and it really interrogates uh, gender roles in this society that she has created in Tehanu. So it's, it's, it's an excellent read. Yeah, I mean, I may read more of the Earth Sea stuff, and and actually, since this these are the only Le Guin books that I've read, um, so I'm going to read more Le Guin. Basically, that's my vow. Maybe not eventually, like Scott. Maybe eventually, like Scott. I don't know. It depends. We'll see which one of us reads a, a Le Guin book first between us, Scott. How about that? Oh. The race is on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> this will be the least exciting reality show ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but. Uh, that, that I think wraps it up, but it was fun reading these books. I'm glad I got to do that. I'm going to read more eventually, as Scott said. And uh, uh, it was fun to talk about them with my four guests, who I will say goodbye to now. Glenn Fleischman, thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Scott McNulty, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Anthony Johnston, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the main show for once. It's very nice to have you. And Erica Ensign, thank you. Uh, it was great to be here. Thanks, Jason. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of the Incomparables Book Club. Yay! We will see you next week, probably not talking about books. Boo!